Second Peter chapter one verse three through eleven. Before we do, um, I, I will let you guys know that today is our last day in our stages of the journey teaching series. We've been over the last few weeks, this being week six, exploring and asking the question of where am I in my discipleship to Jesus? We've been invited on a journey of change and formation and transformation. And it's important, I think, for us to have an awareness of where we are in our formation process or where we are in our development as followers of the way of Jesus. Um, Because most of us, if we're honest, we're kind of just holding on for dear life. We're not quite sure where we are on this map of discipleship. And so we're looking at the ancient idea of stage theory and looking at different Um, domains or stages of the discipleship process with Jesus. And I want us all to be aware that discipleship and the journey is a process that we all are in. It is not static. It is dynamic. It is a continual process that lasts a lifetime. Eugene Peterson refers to it as long obedience in the same direction. That is what we are in as individuals of the way of Jesus. And we're exploring these different stages together. But this week is our last week. And then next week, we will jump into a new teaching series where we will be exploring the book of Daniel together in the Old Testament in a teaching series called Planted, specifically looking at from the book of Daniel and his handful of friends What does it look like to live faithfully in Babylon? What does it look like to maintain a sense of conviction in a culture of compromise? What does it look like for us in the modern secular world that we live in? What does it look like for us to become what Arnold Toynbee calls a creative minority? And we are kind of Leaning into the planted idea for a couple of reasons, there's, there's multiple reasons why we're using this word. Number one, there's a moment in Daniel 1 where Daniel chooses not to defile himself by not eating from the king's table, so he just eats vegetables for 10 days. He chooses to not defile himself, and he resolves by eating vegetables. Plus, they're planted in exile without choice. But also, they are a planted and grounded and rooted and faithful few. And so that's where we'll be going next week. So kind of prepare yourself uh, over the next few weeks, um, and we will be looking at what God has in store for us in the teaching series that is to come. All right. Are you there? Second Peter chapter 3. Excuse me. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. You are there? Are you sure? Okay, okay, here we go. Let's try this out together. All right, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. It's on the screen if you don't have a copy of the printed scriptures. I would encourage you to get one. We have some for free if you would like. Okay, it says this. His divine power, being Jesus, has given us everything that we need for a godly life. Someone say godly life. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises. So that through them you may participate. Someone say participate. In the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And to goodness knowledge and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. 
For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. As we have been meandering through this teaching series and looking at the journey that we have all been invited on as followers of Jesus, I have been somewhat curious and captivated, particularly at the life of Peter. He is someone that is interesting to me, and just seeing his journey of formation from beginning to follow Jesus as an 18 to 20-year-old with a handful of fishermen on the north side of the Sea of Galilee in a little village called Bethesda. Uh, He leaves it all and begins following this random rabbi with some of his business partners named James and John, along with his brother, Andrew. And he experiences so much along the way. And if you know know anything about Peter, his biography is kind of all over the place. His personality is somewhat aggressive. Uh, He's very outspoken. He's a little domineering. He doesn't have much of a filter. What comes in his mind comes out his mouth. Uh, I don't know if anybody resonates with that at all. Uh, I know I do at times, for sure. He sticks his foot in his mouth often, Um, but he's a take-charge kind of guy. And he goes on this kind of meandering journey of becoming. And I have just been increasingly interested in the journey of Peter um, to where eventually, you know, he finds himself uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and James and John, very close, intimate three with Jesus, And he has all these crazy moments. He sees his mother-in-law healed by Jesus. Peter is one of the only, if not the only, disciple or apostle that was married. And he sees his mother-in-law healed by Jesus early on in his formation. Uh, He gets rebuked by Jesus after questioning Jesus in Caesarea Philippi. Um, He goes on to eventually tell Jesus that he will never deny him ever, that he's loyal that he's committed, that he's ride or die. And then just shortly after, Peter has his moment of denial. He denies Jesus, not just once, but three different times. A little girl comes up to him essentially and is like, do you know this, this man? And he's like, no, I don't know. I don't know him. I don't know who that is. And we see this wild up and down, nonlinear journey of Peter to where eventually... Mary and a few women go to the tomb, it's empty, and they head back, and it says in the text that they go back and they talk to Peter after Peter has denied Jesus. Now, one of the things I find interesting about Peter, and I mentioned this last week, is that Peter, just like Judas, denied Jesus. But what, 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 what does Peter do that's different? What, what does Peter do that's unique? He stays in his community. He stays in his community. In the midst of his denying Jesus, he actually stays in his community because the women come back to Peter and they tell of the empty tomb. And and Peter is just overjoyed. Now, it's interesting because um, Peter's Hebrew name originally, before Jesus calls him Peter and changes his name, His name was Simeon, or in the Greek, it's Simon. And Simeon in the Hebrew simply means to understand or to hear or to obey. And do we not see an interesting journey of obedience and disobedience in the life of Simeon? But then Jesus does refer to him as Peter the Rock, even though his life is a bit rocky. Peter, I think, presents to us a very beautiful case study for the life of formation and the stages of the journey. Now, obviously, we're all different and unique. We're not going to mirror our life directly after Peter, but we do see a very interesting mirage of life events. It's nonlinear for Peter. In fact, he denies Jesus at the very end of Jesus' ministry after he's been with him for quite a while, seen miracles seen demons cast out. Matter of fact, there's moments at the beginning of the gospel in Mark where we see Jesus specifically just choose Peter, James, and John to follow him on some little adventure. Peter was a close confidant with Jesus, and his journey of discipleship was not linear. He 
But then it kind of comes to a moment of, of major shift for Peter in John 21. In John 21, it's after the resurrection of Jesus. Peter's actually already seen Jesus one time before, but Peter and his buddies are doing what they've been doing for years. They're out fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And they've been fishing all night long, and they can't catch anything. And then there's this random man up on the shore who basically yells out to them, hey, you guys, you guys fishing? Yeah. We're really mad and frustrated because we haven't been able to catch anything all night long. And these guys are professionals. I want us all to know. And Jesus says to them, why don't you throw your nets to the other side of the boat? And they obey him even though they don't recognize him. Peter obeys Jesus even though he doesn't recognize him. And they have this miraculous catch. And then there's a moment where Peter recognizes on the shore, the Sea of Galilee, that he is the Messiah, that that is Jesus. And they get out of the boat. It says that Peter essentially jumps out of the boat and starts going towards Jesus on shore. And they have breakfast together, cooking up some fish, which I don't eat fish for breakfast. I don't know if you do. That's a very interesting meal for breakfast, in my opinion. I don't know. But they're having breakfast together around a fire, eating some fish, maybe some Cracker Barrel biscuits on the side. I don't know. A little, little coffee and uh, some, some jam. And uh, Jesus starts having this one-on-one conversation with Simeon, or Peter. And he begins asking and probing questions, specifically the question of, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter's like, what? what? Well, of course I do, Lord. He keeps asking. And he's asking, do you love me in a brotherly sense? Phileo love? But then eventually asks him, do you love me in the agape sense? And he says, yes. And Peter in that moment, in that scene, is reinstated as an apostle. Now, I find that interesting because many of us on our journey from Jesus, our journey with Jesus, excuse me, come to a point where I do think after a long journey with him, he he has a very simple one-on-one conversation with us. Or he says, do you love me? Do you, agapao is the, the verb tense of agape. Will you sacrifice your life for me? Not just do you think I'm cool, do you enjoy hanging out with me? I think some of us think the question Jesus asks us is, do you enjoy kicking it with me? Am I fun? Am I cool? Do you like my style? Do we have common interests? Do you like getting food with me? And then it shifts, and there's a moment where Jesus looks at each of us, and he says, um, would you sacrifice your life for me? Would you, would you give everything for me? Now, this is later in Peter's journey, and he's asking, do you love me? The journey of Peter uh, continues on, eventually, where he's preaching at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And not only has he had faith in Jesus, but you begin to, see, begin to see him develop into a person who has the faith of Jesus. He goes from faith in Jesus to developing the faith of Jesus. And he proclaims in Jerusalem, the place where he recently was pressured to deny Jesus, he proclaims the resurrected Lord. His journey continues till eventually, in his later years, he writes these last couple of letters in the 60s AD, 30-some years after the resurrection, 30-some years after Peter denies Jesus. And in this letter, he is talking about divine power. He's talking about partaking in the divine nature of God. He's talking about escaping the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Then he goes on to talk about the inner qualities or characteristics of a follower of Jesus. He gives us eight, specifically. A mature, adult, formative apostle in the church, Peter, who's had a wild journey, is giving us eight different inner qualities that are deeply important for us as followers of Jesus because of the knowledge that's been given to us and understanding that's been given to us as disciples of Jesus both in an understanding sense and in an intimacy stance. Now, 
I want to reread this passage briefly from the message translation. And I want us to think about it in regards to Peter's journey, okay? In regards to Peter's formation. Here is what the message translation has to say, or Eugene Peterson has to say from this text in terms of what it means to be a mature follower of Jesus. Peter's old at this point, later in his life. Everything that goes into a life of pleasing God has been miraculously given to us by getting to know personally and intimately the one who invited us to God. The best invitation we have ever received. We were also given absolutely terrific promises to pass on to you. Your tickets to participation in the life of God after you turned your back on a world corrupted by lust. I want us to know that when we follow Jesus... We are actually turning our back away from a world that is corrupted by lust or these animalistic cravings of the flesh. So don't lose a minute, he says, in building on what you have been given. Complementing your basic faith with good character. Another word, another translation here is virtue or goodness spiritual understanding, alert discipline, passionate patience, reverent wonder, warm friendliness, and generous love. Each dimension fitting into and developing the others. Now, what you notice about these is it sounds a lot like Paul's fruit of the Spirit. Does it not? Except these are from Peter. And they are bookended by two innate characteristics for us as we mature as followers of Jesus. Two aspects that are required. Faith and love. Faith is not simply belief. It is not just an intellectual assent. It is not just believing that, but rather it is an embodied trust played out in obedience. And if Jesus functions as king, savior, and as rabbi, then the way in which we respond in faith might look different to each. To a teacher, we respond in obedience. When your teacher asks you to do something, you do it. When your teacher asks you to follow this way, you follow the way. Faith extended to a savior looks like trust, believing that they're good believing that they have the, your best interest in mind, extending trust to the Savior. Will he actually do what he says he can do? And then faith extended to a king is one of loyalty and allegiance. But faith is not simply belief. It is obedience, it is trust, and it is loyalty. And then he bookends on the backside with love, agape. Which again, I find interesting because of Peter's autobiography. Love was probably a trigger word for Peter. Because Jesus kept asking him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? I mean, when someone asks you the same question over and over again, you're kind of like, you're getting annoying. Honestly, you're getting a little annoying. Do you love me? Do you love me? But really, do you love me? But he bookends with love, agape. And I do believe that we live in a moment that has no understanding of what love is. Because when a word begins to mean everything, it begins to mean nothing at all. Love, according to M. Scott Peck, is the, the, the extension of the will, or the will to foster one, uh, another person's good. To extend oneself in such a way that you are seeking the good of another. That is what love is. It is active. That's what agape means, is to extend. It's not desire. It's not emotion, necessarily. That's an aspect of love, but primarily in the New Testament, love is active. But we live in a moment that says love primarily is about a desire or a feeling, or it's primarily about indifference. 
But love is actually seeking the good of another, seeking to foster one's formation and growth. And in the middle of these two bookends, these characteristics, these qualities, he continues on with different aspects that build off of one another. And I believe that these are inner qualities that we, as followers of Jesus, when we reach mature adulthood, so to speak, as followers of the way, these are qualities that have become more and more robust in our life as disciples of Jesus. Peterson goes on to say, with these qualities active and growing in your lives, no grass will grow under your feet. No day will pass without its reward as you mature in your experience of our master Jesus. Notice the language of growing in your life. That These are qualities that are growing and deepening in your life as we mature. Without these qualities, he says, you can't see what's right before you, oblivious that your old sinful life has been wiped off the books. So, friends, confirm God's invitation to you, his choice of you. He's extended an invitation to you to experience life and life abundantly. He has chosen you. Don't pull it off, he says. Do it now. Do this, and you'll have your life on a firm footing. The streets paved and the way wide open into the eternal kingdom of our master and savior, Jesus Christ. In the New American Standard, it says in verse 10, for if you practice these things, or for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. In other words, these are qualities that over time in our formation, we practice over and over again. Faith practice. Virtue and goodness, we practice. Self-control, we practice. Knowledge, we practice. Perseverance, we practice. Godliness, we practice. All of them are building off of one another. And a mature, elderly Peter is saying that these are the very inner qualities of one who has experienced the divine power and is participating in the divine nature. You and I. This is, I believe, what it looks like to have the inner qualities and the inner characteristics of a mature follower of Jesus, or more specifically, one who is living a life modeled after Jesus of Nazareth. In this Stages of the Journey series, we have looked at, up to this point, four different stages or domains. And I've noticed that this teaching series has created the most side conversation than any other teaching series I think we've done in recent memory. The questions, the wrestling, the tension that has come with it has actually been very fascinating for me to experience. But I believe God is doing something in this teaching series and has been and helping us gain awareness of where we are, where we're heading and where we are to go, specifically as it relates to these inner qualities, to the growth of these inner qualities. We are to grow up in our salvation, as Peter has said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. We are to grow up or to mature, and I have enjoyed the conversation around this topic. But these inner qualities are, I believe, the eight inner qualities of a mature follower of Jesus, but primarily begins with individuals who are partaking or participating in the divine nature of God. The mystics call this union or theosis or Christian perfection, a person who has been made whole and complete because of the participation of the spirit inside of one's self. Remember, Paul in Colossians 1 gives his, his kind of focus or what he's after, his purpose and reason for preaching, really, and that is to present everyone fully mature. And I believe wholeheartedly that these eight Aspects and qualities are what a follower of Jesus who is mature looks like. We've gone from 
stage one, managing, or excuse me, moments with God, to stage two, managing behavior, to stage three, which is mission with Jesus. Then we spent some time looking at the wall as well as the dark night of the soul. I know many of you are still having conversation about that, which is fantastic. And now we move into the final phase after the movement inward, and that is modeling the life of Jesus. But for most of you, you probably came in expecting some sort of like mountaintop. Oh, that's what it looks like. Ah! And actually, it's not that. My talk today, in some regard, is going to be very dry. It already has been, if you haven't noticed. There is exhilaration and passion that comes in the majority of our formation with Jesus. But at some point, we realize the innate simplicity of participating in the divine nature. And when we participate in the divine nature, these qualities begin to take root. It's not flashy. It's not sexy. It's rooted. It's grounded. It's steadfast. Have you ever been around a follower of Jesus that is in their 70s or 80s and has been following Jesus for decades. And you ask them, what's your time with Jesus like? And you're wanting some sort of like wild and crazy answer. And it's actually very simple and very mundane and ordinary. But they exude joy. They exude peace. They exude goodness. They have self-control. They exude love. They practice trust. That is what it looks like to be a mature follower of Jesus. It's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. But we must grow into that. We begin to have a greater awareness of what God is doing in our life. And yes, there's an active spirituality and there's a passive spirituality. But as I said last week, over time, you begin to realize God is actually doing more in you than you are doing for him. And you just simply submit to that. You submit to that reality. But we must be a people who continue to grow. And I realize the majority of our community is under the age of 40. That means we have a long ways to go in our maturity and in our journey and formation. For most of us, that's really just half of a biological life. We have a long ways to go to walk into this kind of simplicity where we become a people of love, a people of these qualities in the inner spaces of our life. But we must keep going. We must keep growing. St. Gregory of Nyssa says this about sin, which I find to be very interesting. I read this this past week. It struck me. He says that sin happens whenever we refuse to keep growing. Sin happens whenever we refuse to keep growing. If you refuse to keep growing, sin will begin to creep up like weeds in a garden. But we must grow. We must mature. We must develop. Now, quick note I want to share as well that I've been thinking a lot about over the last few months, and it's the nature of salvation. Most of us have grown up in church spaces primarily where salvation is viewed as a transaction between you and the Father because of Jesus and by way of his Spirit. But I want us all to have a reshaped vision of salvation based on the New Testament. Salvation is formation. It is something, as Peter has said, that we grow up in. There is a past reality of salvation, a present reality of salvation, but more than likely, most of the time, in the New Testament, it is a future reality. It is not transactional. It is transformational. Because here's the deal. When salvation becomes transactional, it doesn't produce disciples of Jesus. When salvation becomes transactional, being a follower of Jesus is optional. 
you can actually be a Christian and not a disciple of Jesus. And that's foreign to the New Testament writers. And so as we think about maturing in the way, we think about even salvation, salvation is a process that we enter into. A process of forming and transforming. Listen to what Jackie Hill Perry has to say. I think this is really well said. When salvation has taken place in the life of someone under the sovereign hand of God, they are set free from the penalty of sin and its power. In a body without the spirit, sin is an unshakable king under whose dominion no man can flee. The entire body with its members, affections, and mind all willfully submit themselves to sin's rule. But when the spirit of God takes Back the body that he created for himself, he sets it free from the pathetic master that once held it captive and releases it into the marvelous light of its Savior. It is then able to not only want God, but it is actually able to obey God. And isn't that what freedom is supposed to be? The ability to not do as I please, but the power to do what is pleasing? That is salvation. That is the nature of salvation. Some of us have heard this phrase before, that it's not about what you do, but what Jesus has done for you. But you don't read that in Jesus. You don't read that language in the gospel story. There's actually a divine cooperation that happens in salvation where we participate in it. It's a gift given. It's faith that's given. But we exercise that faith and that gift as we mature and move further along. So, As we look at the very end of this teaching series, Modeling the Life of Jesus, I really just all week long wrestle with what direction do we go? Struck by Peter, but I've also been struck by the nature of salvation and specifically about discipleship with Jesus. And this one little simple verse from Luke 6, 40 that you have heard us read over and over again, but I'm going to come back to it today as we talk about modeling the life of Jesus, not just in our inner being or inner qualities, but our behaviors as well, because most of us struggle with that. We have good intentions, but we have bad practices. We don't always know what to do. We may even know what we want, but we don't know how to facilitate a change of behavior in our life. And in Luke 6, 40, Jesus says this, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. You and I, as we are being trained by the Spirit in us, are to be like our Master, Jesus. Not just in thought or in motivation, but in practice and in behavior. Dallas Willard says, The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as quote-unquote Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That is our heartbreaking need. That is our pressing call this morning in our season that we're in as a church. Will you become a disciple of Jesus? Will you become an apprentice? In thought, in attitude, in motivation, as well as in behavior and practice. So what does that look like? At Emmaus, we talk about three different orientations in terms of what it means to be a disciple. If you're wondering, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? I read my Bible. I go to church. Like I do the things, I think. I'm kind of a good person. I listen to worship music every once in a while. And you're like, that's all, I, that's all there is. That's it. And I'm like, man, you're missing out. You're missing out greatly. So what does a disciple orient themselves around? It's three things. Very simple. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. And do what he did. To be with Jesus. We call this prayer. To spend time in prayer with our rabbi. Jesus first calls his disciples to him. Self. To be with him. First. This is prayer. This is a space of cultivating intimacy, silence, and solitude. Spending time with Jesus by way of the Spirit. And then becoming like Jesus in our attitude. 
These qualities that Peter mentions here are attitudes or dispositions of the heart. And I wanted to give the background of Peter because for some reason, for the longest time, he wrestled with his inclinations. He had a heart wrestle. But we are to become like Jesus in our attitude, our disposition, because we can do things the right way with the wrong motives, with the wrong intentions, with the wrong posture. But we become like Jesus in attitude, but we also do what he did. Plain and simple, we obey his way. We obey his way. It's not that difficult. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did. This is what it looks like to model the life of Jesus. Now, when we talk about modeling, we have to ask the question, what example did he set for us? What type of model did he set before us? What did he do? What did he do? So I want you to take about 30 seconds, talk to a neighbor about that question. What did Jesus do? That's my question, okay? Not, you don't have to get theological and start, the, you know, getting all kinds of different crazy thoughts about um, atonement theory, but like, what did he do? Talk to your neighbor briefly, okay? Okay. Well done. Well done. I hope that that was, that was beneficial to get some different perspectives on the question of what did he do? I want to answer that question this morning in a very simplistic way. Because I want all of us to have a clear framework of who Jesus was and what he did. We have the inner qualities here that you can sit in, marinate on in Peter. Peter is teaching. He's exhorting a church or a group of churches, really, actually, in Asia Minor. But with the gospel, you have a story. You have a biography centered around the person of Jesus. And I want us to be able to know, what did he do? You know, we could sit here and we could theorize about Jesus's motives his causes or his reasons, but instead I want to look plainly, plainly, black and white at the example and model he gave in his actions. Because here's the deal. The reality is we are to change by way of the Spirit to look like Jesus in both motive or heart posture and in our actions and behaviors in everyday life. John Mark Comer, who is a dear friend of mine that I, uh, I enjoy spending time with occasionally, uh, says to experience the life of Jesus, we have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Do you want the life of Jesus? Ask yourself that question first. Do you want the life of Jesus? If so, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. You have to. So let's look at his lifestyle. Let's look at what he did. I have for you, and I've never done this in any teaching before, so just buckle up, okay? I have for you, after spending time this week thinking through this, just kind of off the top of my head, sort of, 25 behaviors of Jesus. 25 things that Jesus did, not just once, but often consistently. Because some of us are like, I want Jesus, but I don't know what to do. Let's see what he did. Can we do that together? And I'm not going to spend a ton of time, I promise. It won't take very long. 25, which some of you are laughing. You're like, yeah, right. Uh, 25 behaviors of Jesus, consistent practices and habits in his life, okay? Here we go. First one, he received his identity. He didn't create it. He received it. The Father called him beloved son. He received his identity. The second thing is that he retreated to be with his father in prayer. Luke 5, 16 says he withdrew frequently to pray. Jesus prayed a lot. Sometimes all night Jesus prayed. Sometimes he would just out of the blue just peace out. All right, this has been cool. I'm going to pray. 
I've enjoyed this frozen custard at Freddy's, but I got to go home to pray. Jesus did it often. His entire life flowed out of prayer, not into it. Most of our lives flow into prayer because of what we're experiencing externally or internally. But he actually spends his entire life oriented in and around prayer, and out of that flows his life. So he received his identity, retreated to be with his father in prayer. The third thing is he moved slowly, but intentionally. I don't know if you knew this or not. Jesus walked everywhere. He walked. Okay? He didn't have a Tesla. He didn't have a car. He didn't even have a bus pass. Okay? The dude walked everywhere, slowly but intentionally. And he also allowed for interruptions. All the time he allowed for interruptions. But when it was time, it was time. He was always walking on purpose. He walked slow, but on purpose. He moved at a slow pace. Here's the next thing, the fourth thing. He worked. Very simple. He worked. Majority of his life was in obscurity as a carpenter using his hands. Working. The next thing that Jesus did is that he did what the Father asked him to do. He obeyed the Father. The Father said, do this, do X, Y, Z. He did it. Jesus specifically said himself, I only do what the Father tells me. The Father doesn't say anything. I don't do it. If he says, do it, I do it. Jesus taught others. He taught others. That's kind of a self-evident one. But it was deliberate, but as, as well as in passing. He deliberately taught people, his disciples, crowds, but also in passing, in side conversations, it just kind of happened because of interruption. He taught others. He also told stories. Jesus was a fantastic storyteller. He told parables constantly. He had a creative bent. He used his hands as a carpenter. He told stories. He's a storyteller. Jesus also went to synagogue religiously. It kind of irks my nerves sometimes when I hear people say that uh, Christianity is about relationship, not religion. I'm like, really? Pretty sure Jesus was pretty religious. Yes, it's about relationship, but it's also, there's religious duty. Jesus went to synagogue religiously. Luke 16 speaks to that. It was his custom to go to synagogue or the gathering that happened every week, sometimes multiple times a week. He cared for the forgotten, both physically and spiritually. He healed many people and did many miraculous things. Healed the sick, healed the lame, healed the blind, healed the feeble. But he also cared for them spiritually as well. He healed them, not just physically, but in their inner being as well. Jesus also casually cast out some demons. No big deal. Sometimes very, in a very like simple, kind of nonchalant way. Come out, name yourself. What? That's nuts. Okay? It wasn't some like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cast you. Come out. Name yourself. Cast out some demons. Okay? Next thing is he ate with people. He ate with people a lot. Jesus ate a lot. I'm pretty sure Jesus grew up in the South. Like, let's be honest. He ate a lot of food. Ate a lot of food. But he ate both with the aristocrats as well as the peasants. Both Zacchaeus as well as the peasants or the low class of his day. Jesus also gave thanks. He had a posture of gratitude. He gave thanks, verbal thanks to the Father. Jesus cried. He cried. Which means he grieved. I love that we have a Savior who grieved and cried. We have a king and God who has cried. You can't get more empathetic than that. He spoke truth. Jesus was honest. He didn't sugarcoat. Matter of fact, Jesus wasn't even welcomed in his own hometown because of this. He spoke truth. Sometimes it was offensive, but he spoke truth. It was in love, but I'm not going to get there in terms of motives and his purpose and reason. I just know by reading the text, he spoke truth. Jesus also knew the scriptures really well. 
He quoted the Old Testament at least, some scholars believe, 78 times. He quoted the Hebrew Bible. He knew the scriptures, meaning he spent time in the scriptures. Jesus asked questions. He was great at asking questions. In the temple at age 12, as well as in everyday conversation. He had a curious intellect, but he also asked very basic questions in everyday conversation with people. He would go up to a lame man and say, do you want to get well? Well, no, duh, bro. I've been here for three decades, man. He asked questions. Can I have some water? He asked questions. Jesus also empowered women. The very first evangelist that we see in John's gospel account is the woman at the well. Who's a Samaritan? She goes back to her village, proclaims that she's just met the Son of God, and the village gets changed. Revival breaks out because of this hussy. Hello. He empowers women. He also had a very high view of singleness. You can read Matthew 19, 11 for that. He had a high view of marriage, but I would argue, this is me theorizing, so I apologize, that he had a higher view of singleness. Higher view of singleness. He himself was single and celibate. He lived in community. He lived in community. Not programmatically. He didn't just show up to the church on a Wednesday at 7 o'clock for midweek service. He lived in and around his people constantly. He valued children. He lived simply. Jesus had no place to lay his head. He lived very simply. He served those that he didn't know and those closest to him as well. If you remember, Jesus washes the disciples' feet on the night before he's crucified. He served both those he didn't know and those that were the closest to him. Jesus also served in secret. He performed some miracles and asked them not to tell anyone. That's a practice for a mature believer. Go serve some people and don't tell anyone about it. Go bless someone. Go write someone a check for $1,000 that just hurt your bank account. Don't tell anybody about it. Go extend yourself. Go serve. Go take some time out of your day. But don't tell anyone about it. Jesus did this. He proclaimed the kingdom of heaven. He proclaimed the reality of the kingdom of heaven. He also called people to change their way of thinking. And finally, as we all know, he sacrificed his life for others. Do you want to know what Jesus did? Here are 25 things. 25 behaviors. For some of you, these things seem natural and easy. For others of you, they seem deeply challenging. If any of you are proficient in casting out demons, I would love to talk to you after our gathering. This is what it looks like, I think, to do what Jesus did. To look at his lifestyle. John 13, 15, in his upper room discourse, he specifically tells his disciples, I have set you an example or a model or pattern or paradigm that you should do. Here are some of his behaviors. Now, where did all of this start for Jesus? Where did it begin? It began by him receiving his identity. By knowing the Father. By knowing whose he was. He received, he just received the love of the Father. This is not only who I am, but whose I am. I receive it. I'm a beloved son. I receive it. And out of that identity, I'm going to live and walk and breathe and do and act and believe. Identity, friends, as we close. Identity is linked to oneness. When you look up what identity means in its original language, it means oneness. That which you are one with. And oneness is linked to completeness. And completeness, wholeness, and maturity. You and I cannot become mature followers of the way of Jesus if we don't first receive the identity given to us. And as we do, we live out of that identity. We spend time with our rabbi. We become like our rabbi, and we do exactly what he did. And even greater things. 
So may we be a people that let Jesus teach us his way, his pattern. May we observe his behaviors, how he chose to spend his time. But may we also recognize that it begins by being with him. And as we've gone on this journey of you know, moments with God, managing behavior, to mission with Jesus, to the movement inward, to, to modeling the life of Jesus, in some ways it comes full circle to becoming like a child again. Trusting in our Father receiving his goodness, recognizing and having awareness that he is with us and in us, and simply allowing ourselves to be with him and to simply follow what he did by way of his son in the gospel. It's not grandiose. It's simple. But it's peaceful. It's fruit-bearing. It's restful. And it's good. And Jesus himself says, any of you are tired and weary and burdened, and if I talk to you, I would bet 95% of you would say you're tired, you're weary, you're exhausted, you're burdened, you're heavy laden. He says, I will give you rest, but you must take my yoke upon you, learn from me, and learn my ways, and you will find rest for your souls. Here are his ways. Here's what he did. He's inviting you into that. If you want rest, if you want wholeness and maturity and completeness in the way of Jesus over the long haul, here's what he did. Follow into that. Pascal, Blaise Pascal, the famous philosopher, said, the strength of a man's virtues should not be measured by his special exertions, but by his habitual acts. Small little disciplines. This is why we have a rhythm of life. Pray, rest, learn, gather, and contribute. All five deeply planted in the way of Jesus. May we be a people of presence, recognizing that God's presence is always with us and that we don't need wings to fly to seek and find, but simply by turning our attention inward to the spirit within us. And out of that place, we walk and live and breathe and move in obedience to the way as whole and complete and mature believers until the day in which he comes again or into our last breath. I love that when I talk to a seasoned saint, that often their practices and their way of following Jesus is just so simple and not complex. And there's a simplicity today that I want us all to lean into. So can we just, let's just pray together. Let's just close our eyes. We're going to have a communion table up. And as you close your eyes,